we, we can't define ourselves by what we've done. What we've done has made us who we are. What we do with that is what's important. In this episode, we had the pleasure of speaking with our friend J.C. Glick, a retired lieutenant colonel who served with multiple units, including the 75th Ranger Regiment on 10 combat rotations. We take a philosophical dive into the veteran experience and discuss what it takes to transition from the military successfully. We also get into the books he's authored, what it's like working with professional sports teams, and much more. Real stories, real heroes, for a real cause. This is Never Left Behind, the podcast. JC, what's going on, man? Thanks for joining us tonight. Oh, it's my, it's, it's not only a pleasure, it's an honor. Thank yeah. you for having me. Yeah, it's been, uh, it's funny, it hasn't been that long since we visited you, but it feels like it's been a little while. It has. It, it, it does feel like that. And it was it was so nice to have you guys, uh, at the house and, you know, kind of experience that camaraderie, mm-hmm. um, that, that we take for granted when we're in yeah. totally. and, uh, is, is missed significantly once we leave. And obviously myself, I don't know anything about that, you know, from not being enlisted, but, or being in the service at all, but it was kind of cool even seeing, Tom, who hasn't seen you for like 10 years, just watching him like get all giddy again yeah. and like catch up with everything. <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, it, it's, um, there's a, there's a camaraderie in the regiment that exists that I don't know that, um, I'm sure it exists in the Marine Corps and, mm-hmm. and in other units that, you know, are small and, um, and special. And, uh, it was so great to, uh, to be with Rangers again. It was, it was just really nice. It's, it's interesting. Cause I going through this trip, I haven't really hung out with a lot of my Ranger buddies, um, until I went on this road trip and it's been really cool to kind of reconnect with a lot of people that I haven't seen in a long time. But then you remember even the people you didn't directly serve with, you served in the same time period within the same unit. And it's like you're right back in it. Like it's it's like that brotherhood, that camaraderie is right back there. It's like you didn't skip a beat whatsoever. And it's just cool to to be able to be welcomed into your household. I can't thank you and Jen enough for for help uh, to, for hosting us for the evening and uh, and just having a good time. It was awesome. Yeah, it was it was it was such a great experience for us. We loved having you and. Um, you know, even Isabel, you know, being and getting to see kind of that mm-hmm. part of a life that quite honestly, Jen never really got to experience Yeah, and for her yeah. to get to see that was, it was important. It was good. Yeah. And to make listeners feel involved, uh, you know, recently Dan and I and Tom drove up to visit UJC up in New York and uh, Long Island and, you know, just kind of, you know, caught up and got to know you at least first time in person, took your photo for the book since you're, you know, a big story in our book coming up. And it was also fun the next morning doing that cold plunge in the Atlantic <laughs> ocean. That was awesome. That was a lot of fun. And it's funny cause, uh, last weekend my boys were up and we actually went out on the jetty yeah. 
and uh, we're with the boys out there. And, uh, you know, I showed them where we jumped in and uh, it was much calmer. Than yeah, when we went in. <laughs> I bet it uh, it sobered Tom up real fast. He was uh, he was not feeling great the next morning. But as soon as we jumped in the water and he came back out, he was he was ready to go for the day. <laughs> I, I don't think Tom even drinks a lot to begin with. So like just catching up with you that night and it was like you were pouring heavy on the glasses <laughs> and I feel like it was on purpose because I felt it a little. Tom was like zigzagging through the hotel hallway trying to get to bed. Oh, man. Tom awesome. or I mean, Dan was fine, obviously, because he had to drive. But that was just that was a fun night. That was it was a great night. It was a great night. And it was uh, and it was great the next day to, to, yeah. to sit down and talk to you guys about you know, transition and, and to do those pictures. And I'm really excited to see, uh, how it comes out. Yeah. We'll very, definitely get into all that too. To yep. So, uh, kind of to kick you off, you know, we like to kind of, you know, start from the beginning and see, you know, why you are the person you are and, and, uh, and really just start out, you know, why, what inspired you to join the military in the first place and especially to serve within the 75th Ranger Regiment? Like what was the, the cruxes that brought you in? Yeah. So, um, so I was a less than stellar, uh, high school student. Um, and now they would say I took a gap year, but the truth is I just couldn't get into any schools, mm -hmm. um, couldn't pay for any schools. And, uh, you know, I took, I was basically two years, I took two years between high school and college and when I finally got the opportunity to go to college, um, which was based in a huge part to my, my mom and dad who kind of welcomed me back kind of into the, into the family. Um, I thought that I had to, I, I didn't think that anybody could be, could go from being kind of homeless to getting to go to college mm -hmm. and I thought that was unique to America and I felt that I need to kind of pay that back because I had a tremendous opportunity um, and uh, once once I made that commitment um, there was only one place I wanted to serve and there was only one thing I wanted to do and that was command in the in the ranger regiment mm -hmm. um because i wanted to be I, I didn't think i was ever the best at anything but i wanted to be with the best yep. mm. and uh that's what that got to that that's what i got to do and um it's i'm i i feel very very blessed to have been able to serve uh and that unit the asymmetric warfare group and quite honestly all the units i got to serve in i was truly blessed i was not good enough for any of them and i got to serve with quite honestly the best americans that this country could ever imagine mm -hmm. well i feel like i gotta correct you a little bit because i know you you you're incredibly humble person and you know you say that you weren't good enough to serve with the best but you know you don't have to be the best as far as, you know, knuckle dragger, carrying the most weight, running the fastest, uh, whatever the case may be. You don't have to be the best of one thing. But um, I think the one thing that Ranger Regiment especially does, and, and honestly, the military in general, is they uh, they identify the people that are excellent leaders and people who can 
who could lead men and women and teach them and mentor them and create the best of what they can be. And uh, just talking to a few people who know you, I know that that's the type of person you are and you were uh, while serving. So, well, thank you. I, I hope that um, I hope that I lived up to that ideal. Mm. Um, I I don't think when I initially came in. Uh, when I look at the kind of leader I was when I initially came in and the way I thought kind of pre-combat and the way my leadership kind of thinking went as I developed as an individual and as a warrior, um, you know, I, I was, fall, I was, I was, I was, I felt quite short when I came in initially uh, mm. of what I would think a good leader is now. Um, and one, because of the, the men and women that I got to work with, I became a better leader and two, the experience of, you know, spending almost a decade in combat mm -hmm. and saying, Oh, you know what? Yeah. This whole rah, rah, beat my chest, tough guy thing. Yeah. That, that doesn't work for 11 deployments. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe that works for one. It doesn't work in the long run. And, um, you know, I think that leaders need to aspire to continue to develop, right? What, what worked for you as a lieutenant or as a captain or pre-combat or when you first start in your, in, in your leadership journey if you're the same guy 20 years later, if you're the same woman, you know, 25, 30 years later, then there's a problem. Yeah. Right. Because leadership needs to evolve. Yeah. 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 And, uh, you, you hit on this a little bit and I don't want to age you, but, um, kind of going back to the, <laughs> he's <laughs> to calling the you an old man. <laughs> so what, what year did you, uh, join or what era? I, I guess I could say. Yeah. So I was commissioned on December 21st, uh, I'm sorry, May 21st, uh, 1995, yep. um, at, uh, 24 years old. Wow. And, and I retired in 2015 at 44 years old. Wow. Mm. Yeah. I wanted to touch on that because, you know, you said, um, you know, what you were pre-combat and then what shaped you, especially moving into post 9-11 the high op tempo that regiment has. And then, um, the other units that, you know, deploy consistently. Um, I'm sure that that, that shapes a lot of people, but somebody who's been in already for at that point, six years, I guess. And then, you know, going on a combat rotation, I'm sure that is a completely different, I guess, uh, mindset going into it as opposed to somebody who joined when they knew it was a war military, it was a wartime military. Yeah, it's it, it's totally different. And and I would say that even if you joined when you knew you were going to war, because I think what when I joined, we were we were praying for war. Mm -hmm. I mean, we used to talk about, you know, especially being in the regiment. And I came to the regiment my first time in 97, the end of 97. Um, and I was there 97 to 2000. You know, we were talking about it's like being on a Super Bowl team and never getting to play in the Super Bowl. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're thrust into it. And and it's exactly what we wanted. Um, but there were some 
there were some realities that I don't know that a lot of us were prepared for, um, as well prepared as we might have been, that um, that you can't, you know, this this tough guy beat your chest mentality just it, it, it doesn't it doesn't work for the long run. Mm-hmm. Being authentic is what is what works for the long run. Totally. Yeah, be, being true to yourself, being true to your people um, is what ensures that you'll be successful over time and adapting, right? And knowing when um, you have to be the hammer and things are the nail and when you have to kind of be more velvet and, and, and embrace certain things as the environment changes, as the enemy changes, um, I, I think that, and, and as you, uh, one of the things that, that I, I, I actually just recently talked about with some leaders is, you know, you have these, these young men and women who think differently and they keep coming, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they keep coming into the service with different ideas and different thoughts. And as a leader, I think it's really important that you continue to adapt to be able to explain what you're doing to them, to be able to um, to discuss with them the importance of what they're doing and what resonates for somebody who came in in 1995. I 100% uh, don't believe it resonates for somebody who comes in in 2005. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and you have to be able to discuss it uh, differently. And, yeah. and I don't think that's, I, I, I think, I don't think that's acquiescence. I think that's understanding your job as a leader is not to remain solid in what you believe, but to uh, lead others to accomplish a mission, regardless of what you believe. I think it's it's a mentality shift too, especially when you first join, because um, like you said, you you wanted to be ab- among the best, serve with the best, and ultimately, like even though you you didn't say it outright, you do want to be one of the best. You want to be the best you can be. But after serving several years, especially several combat rotations, you realize that it's not necessarily about being the best, but being as best as you can be, because somebody's life is on the line. And that you need to show what that best looks like or should look like so that people, when they come in and, and they see, you know, that first shock and, and horror of what combat can look like, they can adapt and realize that, damn, I just got humbled. I got our, our ass kicked in a firefighter or whatever the case may be. And now I realize that I'm really facing somebody who wants to hurt me, who wants to kill me. And it's not about me. It's about everybody on my team. Mm. It's about us, yep. right? It, it's it's it's. I think that that was. And I, I love that you say that because I think that was the biggest change for me. I think in a pre-combat um, military, I was I was a little focused on me, and I think that when combat came, it was a focus on us. Mm-hmm. It was I I could be awesome or I could be garbage. It mattered what we were. Yep. It, it, it didn't matter as much what I was as, as much as it mattered what we were. And, and um, 
you know, that was a, that was a big lesson. And that's something that, that I try to bring to um, the private sector so that they mm-hmm. understand that, you know, you can be a superstar and that doesn't really matter if your team isn't mm-hmm. performing. So, yeah, I think that's a, I love what you say there. And I think that's spot on. What, what do you think it was um, personally like for you leading in special operations? Like what was that experience like and what kept you wanting to do that? Um, so I think there were two pieces of it. Um, the, the first piece is probably the most important because the second piece is a little bit more egocentric. I think the, the first piece was, I can't imagine serving with better people than I got to. Like, I just wanted to be around those people and, you know, learn from them and, and private with them and be a part of them. Um, I think the second part was, um, and, and, and it was, it was mainly due to the first part is I felt I was good at what I was doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was good because my guys were good. Um, I, I, I was, I was good because my people were good. And I think we want to continue to do what we feel we're good at. Right. And, um, whether that's, uh, reflected, uh, ability or not, you know, those people were so good. So I felt like it was reflected upon me or, or not. I just, there was something that really spoke to me about being with those men and women. Mm -hmm. And, um, and there was another piece that continued to, to, to speak to me about if somebody has to do it, why shouldn't it be me? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like it shouldn't be someone else. It should be me. And so that's why I continued to want to go, gotcha. I, you know, Hey, send me, send me. I want to do this. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, you know, you've written, uh, two books now. I know you're working on a few more that we're going to get to. Um, but I, I started just just in the very beginning, opened one of your books and it's uh, a light in the darkness. And in the very beginning, you dedicate the book to all the non-commissioned officers. And it's the first thing that you say in your thanks and dedication. And I want to read it because um, I think it's an incredibly powerful thing that uh, this is a different and atypical mindset, I feel like, than many, maybe not all, but many officers that I've even worked with and a lot of other officers that I've heard people work with. But what you uh, what you say here is this book is dedicated to every non-commissioned officer I ever served with in my time in service. You are the ones that demonstrate exempl- exemplary, uh, I can't say that word, exemplary <laughs> leadership. <laughs> you are able to manage the unique challenge of leading subordinates, peers, and superior- superiors every day. And you do it with an ease and ability that is inspiring. You are the example of leadership. And the reason why I pointed that out and I said at the beginning is, is again, uh, there are many officers who don't come in to service with that kind of mindset with, they think, you know, they hold the rank, therefore they are in charge. You know, the rank speaks for their leadership and their ability to do things. But in that passage, I know that you have a completely different mindset to it. So can you talk a little bit about that? 
So the reason I chose to to do the things that I I do in the military is because of non-commissioned officers. Master Sergeant Walsh, Sergeant First Class Archer, Sergeant First Class uh, Torres, who were my cadre at the University of Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as much as I can remember um, the the officers there, um, those were the, those were the men that truly uh, trained me on what was important. And that did not change uh, the minute I got in, I recognized the the strength of the non-commissioned officer corps and um, understanding that the enlisted rank. Um, so 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 simply put, regardless of rank, you're on a team. Mm-hmm. You're a teammate with with those to your right, left, up, or down. And if you see yourself in this hierarchical kind of organization as a superior versus subordinate, I think you're probably missing the optimal path to success. Whereas if you say, well, hey, my role is this, but right next to me, there's a a person who's got another role and right next to them is a person who's got another role. And we all have to together uh, accomplish our roles to be successful as a, as a group. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of being a teammate and, and not a subordinate superior kind of thing. Um, and I think there's this balance. Um, and I, I, I talked to, uh, to some young officers about this is, there, there's this balance. I don't think you have to subordinate yourself to non-commissioned officers. Like, you know, Hey, whatever your platoon sergeant says, whatever your first sergeant says, that's right. Maybe, maybe it's right. Mm -hmm. There's a good chance it's right, but not always. Mm -hmm. And instead of trying to put somebody above you or below you, put them next to you. And that's how we accomplish you know, any objective. And I think that that's, that tends to be the problem, you know, whether it's in uh, the corporate world, sports, even our, our current situation is we're looking to put somebody ahead of us, a leader. We're looking for a leader as opposed to saying, well, we're on a team and this is this person's role and here's my role. Mm. And together we're going to accomplish this. And I think that's, that's kind of been my, my focus. Um, I'm so glad you said that because I've had the other way, right? So I was an NCO training OCS cadets in the North Carolina national guard. And I feel like that was something I was, I I tried to instill in all the officers that came through, um, came through OCS and, and that I had any sort of interaction with, as I told them all the time, I said, you know, your NCOs are going to be there and they have more experience than you you need to rely on their experience, but what they say is not always a hundred percent correct. Just because, you know, you see them and see how they're commanding their team, um, and have a lot of respect that could be great, but you could find a better way of doing something. You could see an easier way of doing something. You could see a better way of leading and, but you have to lean on your NCOs 
for their experience because they've done it a lot longer than you have. And that's the speech I would have with them every single time, every weekend. And look, you got to do it together. It's not uh, like I never believed in officer business and NCO business. There was, there was business to be done. Whoever's there addresses it and we'll do it together. And, you know, um, from the time I was a platoon leader to a company commander to a battalion commander, my biggest, the, the thing that I said the most is this isn't my organization. This is our organization and mm-hmm. together we're going to be successful. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big team guy, even though I'm not a joiner, I, <laughs> I want, I want us all to work together. So would you say, because I, I am in, intrigued, but how do you, because I ask this question actually a lot of times of people, uh, especially, you know, my role in uh, my company that I work for in interviewing a lot of people and within a team, I often ask them, you know, how do you, where do you see yourself fit in with a team? And I'm always, I'm always disappointed, I think, with the answer because there's very clearly two answers you get, but I, I'm intrigued with your answer. And I know I'm setting you, you up for a, <laughs> maybe getting one of those two that I, I, I don't think you're going to answer with though. But when you see yourself in a team, where do you see yourself falling in? Yep. My job is to make, uh, my job is to figure out how to make my teammates better every single day. Yeah. That, 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 does that fall that, under one that of the two? Is, nope. No, no, interesting. Typically, I, I hear one of two things. And I'm always looking for the third that you kind of said is I either lead. I see myself at the top leading the team, steering them, or they say, I just wait for somebody to kind of step first and then let them take over. And the third answer is I'm a facilitator. If I need to see myself taking over something because it's a gap that somebody else can't fill, then I'll fill it. And if there is an opportunity that I can learn from somebody else and gain the knowledge and opportunity, then I do that. But I look at the whole team and understand where the pieces can fit together and facilitate the team to be successful. Yeah. I mean, I, I, what you want in a teammate is somebody who makes you better. Yeah. Right. So, so my job is to look at the team and figure out how do I make my teammates better every single day I come in. And that's not just by doing my job. That's in supporting them or helping them support me or whatever it is. But if I'm not making those around me better with my presence and my actions, then I'm not really sure what I'm doing there. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's an important and powerful words to live by. Um, you know, I have a, a difficult question here. Um, cause I know, I know you, you, you served in the time, uh, of Pat Tillman. And he was an incredible person. Um, Let's get into his background real quick, though, about who Pat Tillman is. Yeah, so correct me if I get any of this wrong, but he was an Arizona Cardinal uh, linebacker, I believe. And uh, he was looking at, you know, getting another contract extension at, you know, continuing to play for the Arizona Cardinals. Um, But he saw this war going on overseas. And he decided, you know, I could play for money or I could play for a team and fight for America's team and decide to deploy and be with the best. Mm. So he decided to join the military. He wanted to be a ranger. So the whole thing was kind of a fiasco. I kind of remember parts of it. I was younger at the time, but I still remember 
a lot of the media kind of followed with him. I remember there was all kinds of sports center stories and everything like that. Um, so I, I wasn't in at that time. So I, I just want to know, you know, kind of what was your experience with that, with such an incredible person who selflessly decided, you know, to turn down a contract to continue to play for the Cardinals and then decided to come into regiment. You know, he just wanted to be a ranger. Mm. He wasn't worried about all that other nonsense. And I think, you know, he was, I guess you could look at it two ways. Like, Hey, you you did play professional football. You kind of have to expect that people are going to follow what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, But that said, he didn't want any of that. He and his brother just wanted to serve and they wanted to serve in the regiment. They wanted to serve in a meaningful way. And they did that in a very meaningful way. Mm -hmm. And um, I think to a certain extent, uh, I don't think the regiment or the regiment's immediate command ever um, allowed it to be more than it really was, which is he's another ranger who's doing mm-hmm. great stuff. And rangers, I, I don't care what your background was, right? I had PhDs. I had guys with master's degrees. I had guys who had just come off the farm or just out of the city. I mean, I had studs across the board regardless Mm -hmm. of of you know hey i played professional football um you know those guys are are special and i think you know um in his passing um i think that there were certain echelons that saw the um the story more than it was as opposed to you know all rangers all soldiers they're they're all special Mm -hmm. they're all special right Mm -hmm. you're part of the one percent that raise their hand and say i'm gonna go and um and when you when someone becomes more equal than the others even in their death i think that 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 hurts a lot of things Mm -hmm. and um you know, and I don't think that's what he would have wanted. I don't, I don't think that's what his brother would have wanted. I, I don't know, but I think what they wanted was to be appreciated for who they were and what they did um, in the military and in the regiment. Yeah. And w- without going too much into it, because, you know, obviously we've said his name, you can Google mm-hmm. whatever the media wants to tell you kind of happened and and you you touched on it a little bit but i know it was kind of a it was it was a blow to the regiment for a while i know it was kind of a a sticking point that that hung around even when i joined i remember when i joined in 2006 so this is years after it happened and i still was told don't talk to the media if they ask you anything about pat tillman like don't talk to anybody about about this and so kind of the aftermath and exactly like what happened how do you think the unit in the regiment was able to hold together to move past that event and kind of stay united to not you know burn their own more to yeah so so i think it was a it was a testament to the regiment in in recognizing that rangers are rangers whether you're pat tillman or you're jc glick or or whoever you are you're you're a ranger and it, it, it doesn't matter what your background was because that's who you were as mm-hmm. opposed to who you are now 
which is you're a ranger in the regiment. And we hold rangers in the regiment across the board to the same standard, right? I mean, the RCO does all the same standards that the new kid, you know, who wants to go through RIP does. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a testament that, you know, this idea of some pigs are more equal than others, kind of, you know, uh, Orwellian idea in the regiment everyone was the same yeah everyone was the same and i think that that is why the regiment was able to continue to kind of move past that right it was almost like you know sometimes i talk about the interesting versus the important Mm -hmm. right uh it's interesting that pat was a professional football player it's important that he was a ranger doing a ranger mission yeah yeah um, and I think that the regiment is very good at separating the interesting from the important. Yeah, so that's a good point. That that's such an interesting thing. I, I uh, it's interesting, um, but it is important for people to say this. Uh, that's a that's a different mindset than I think I've I've ever had, and I'm I'm actually um, I'm probably going to carry that with me because that's uh, that's something I think I've said, but without it being so crystal clear, like cut and dry interesting and important you know often i talk about you know what's on the fluff the fluff the stuff that's on the outside that doesn't really Mm -hmm. matter and what's at the heart of actually you know creating change or what's at the heart of this problem we're having and that's how i typically uh, talk about it but to say you know what's interesting what's important i'm definitely going to take that to my team Mm, i like that jc i got more of a, a a fun question for you now okay uh we can't avoid this question, but through and through, you are a heartless romantic man. <laughs> have, have you always been like that? Or did that just kind of come out of nowhere when, uh, you know, we were there meeting you and you're telling us about your, your current wife? No, it's, um, I think I've always been a kind of a hopeless romantic. Really? I, I think that, uh, I, the idea of the human condition to me is, is so beautiful, right? It's so, it's so nuanced and beautiful in that nuanced look. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I've always kind of, um, maybe in the way that, that I was, you know, that I, that I matured or, you know, the, the romance of, of, um, knowing that there's that there's better and there's beauty and being able to understand that beauty and being able to understand um, the depth of the human condition has mm-hmm. been something that's been very, very important to me um, uh, throughout. And I will tell you that I think that's a big part of my leadership uh mentality is this idea of empathy and believing that at the heart of humans um there's a desire to be more than they are Mm. um sometimes we put a value on it that is negative and sometimes we put a value on it that's positive but I think as leaders, it's important to identify the positive piece 
and to kind of be that kind of hopeless romantic of, you know, I'm going to see the beauty and the possibility of this thing. Because if, if we don't, I'm not really sure our lives, the world around us isn't any better if we don't see it. Mm -hmm. Right. If we're, if we're these, um, utilitarian pragmatists, right? I, I'm not really sure what we're bringing to bear against, against a world that is utilitarian. Yeah. And I think that if we come in with this idea, this, this, this higher level of thinking, these higher expectations, um, I think we can help raise everybody up. Mm. With that said, I'm going to pour more whiskey and, and start taking notes <laughs> because it's funny. Cause I think, uh, me personally, I think I always start off when I was young as being like a hopeless romantic. And I think I got in a pattern at such a young age of being overly romantic to where all that did was push people away. So then as you get older and you go through life experiences, then I became emotionally like unengaged with people. I didn't really care. I became like that you know, just straight up, you know, I guess for a dude, it's like a resting bitch face for a guy in a sense where I was just like, I'm not wearing anything on my sleeve. It's going to take a lot for you to get inside. But the older I get now, it's kind of going back to, I guess, the sense of my childhood where I'm kind of getting more comfortable in that idea of still having that. Well, I don't care if you like it or not, but it's kind of giving more back to people. So it's interesting to hear like you, how that's never changed. You've always been that hopeless romantic and kind of seeing the things you were showing us with you and your wife, you know, it was just really inspiring. So, so it's funny, you know, um, Jen and I were at a doctor's appointment the other day. She had a doctor's appointment and the woman who was checking us in was just, she was being just nasty. She really? was like rude and short and, and, and Jen and I kind of looked at each other and as she was going through it, I went, I finally got to a point and I could have probably been like, Hey, you don't need to talk to us like that. But I yeah. didn't, I, I went, are you having a rough day? And she went, I kind of am. And I said, <laughs> yeah, I could kind of tell that you were having a rough day, but you know what? I think we're going to make it a little bit better. And we started joking around with her and boy, when we left, she was like, all right, see you guys later. I think <laughs> that, you know, we need more of that. That's an interesting right? way of transitioning it, that. It, and you can call it romantic or you can call it, you know, optimistic or, but I think, you know, when we talked about, Hey, my job is to make my teammates better. Imagine if we went into every day trying to figure out how we were going to make our fellow humans better. Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes it's about being better. And sometimes it's about feeling better. And it was clear that this, that this woman just needed to feel like we understood, like you're having a tough day and that's, yeah, get it. Totally get it. You're allowed to have a tough day. Mm -hmm. um, but it was funny. And, and Jen and I talked about it, you know, when we got into the waiting room, I mean, it was almost like, like a snap, like all of a sudden she was like, yeah, like <laughs> a weight was lifted off her shoulder. It's almost like she was waiting for somebody 
to ask that and free her from that mental state, which is kind of interesting yeah. to hear because there's one of two ways that it can go down. And I honestly think that everybody listening, maybe including myself, would think the first way, which would be, why are you being such a bitch? Which mm-hmm. would literally, or why are you being such a dick? You know, and it's kind of like if you go with that approach, then it just heats them up even more and you don't get anywhere. But by taking that higher road and being able to read people and kind of read their emotions and be like, you know what? I can tell you're having a hard day and and don't take it personal that they're taking it out on you. Then all of a sudden it just breaks that ice and things just go much more smooth. Uh, it's that same idea like behind this whole book and the, and the podcast and everything is like, I think. I think a lot of people are are waiting to be seen or waiting to be heard because they they want to feel that human connection like they want to they want to see that somebody's being empathetic towards them and every time I get a telemarketer my wife hates it but I'll answer the phone every time and I'll wait and I'll let them do their spiel and I'll do the whole thing I'll be like honestly I'm, I'm not interested and sometimes I'll do exactly what you're talking about where if they just seem like they're having a bad day sometimes I'll be like um are you having a bad day? Or I'll I'll say a joke or something, just something to change it yep. and com- get it mm-hmm. completely off topic. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I I realized something when I was serving in regiment, and it completely changed my perspective of a lot of things. Is I've always wanted to change the world. I've always wanted to be somebody who's going to change the world, who's going to I don't know, figure out world peace or whatever the case may be. Obviously, I was young and naive. That's not possible. But what I did learn is that I can change somebody's world. I can make an impact to somebody else. Focus on one person at a time. And I can I can easily do that, and that is something I can do with actions every single day. So I think there's a balance, right? Because I think that we need people who believe that they're going to change the world. And they're going to change the world one person at a time. Yeah. yeah. I, I think there's... I, I don't think it's a it's a either or I think it's a yes. And okay. Yeah. Um, and I want you to believe that you're going to change the world and you're going to change it one person at a time. Mm -hmm. And, and you're going to get that, that one idea that completely flips the script Mm. on everything. And you're going to share that and it's going to catch on. And, you know, I think, you know, Jen and I have these conversations because she's like, you think you can do anything. You think you can, you know, make these huge changes. I do. Cause I, cause people have done that before. Yeah. And mm-hmm. we were told in the regiment that there's nothing that we couldn't do. Yep. That said, I don't expect it to happen tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I, I, I know that it's a, it's a slow roll. And sometimes I'm going to fall backwards because I'm not going to live by the Ranger Creed or by, by those standards. And I'll have to reorient. And sometimes I'm going to have to do things for self instead of for others, because that doesn't make me a bad guy. It just means that's, that's where I have to be right now. Um, but I want people to believe that they can change the world. I just, I guess I don't want them and I'm working. I think we talked about this. Um, I'm working with a guy named Steve Forty. Mm, I love Steve. About we met up with him, not to like yeah, go you too met, far. Uh, yeah. Met Steve. yeah, we oh, love yeah. Steve. We love Steve. <laughs> Steve's amazing. Right? Fuck, that guy like, is so inspiring. 
Um, but we're talking about this idea of a book about being the unhero, right? Don't don't go into something trying to be the hero. Um, go into things because they're the right things to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so, so yes, go ahead and change one person at a time with the intent that you're going to change the world. I guess it's that idea too of pay it forward, right? Like mm-hmm. you, you may change that one person's life and hopefully it changes their perspective. And then they're like, you know what? That made my day better. I need to make other people's days better. And maybe that that is the idea, right? Is like, it's a yeah. chain reaction. Mm-hmm. And like, you're right. I should have the perspective that, you know what? I can change the world by changing one person at a time, changing their world one person at a time. And that just spreads. I I believe it does. And I think that we, you know, sometimes we have to remind ourselves and like, it's tough sometimes because it's, you know, the world is the world. And sometimes it's easier just to uh, screw this. I'm not, I I don't want to be nice to this person or I'm tired or whatever it is. And, and just that, that little switch of going, okay, no, I'm going to be deliberately, kind i'm going to be deliberately thoughtful mm-hmm. i'm i'm going to do this without a thought that a person will do something in return mm-hmm. and maybe they miss it maybe they don't even think about it but that's not why we should be doing it we should be doing it because it's the right thing to do i i believe that you know one of the things that i like about the jewish religion um versus a christian Mm-hmm. Uh, perspective Christians are looking for the reward I'm a good mm-hmm. person because this good thing will happen when it's all over yeah yep Jews have a tendency to believe I'm doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do mm. right um, and, and I think that if we just if we're not worried about what's in it for us and we're just doing the right thing you know, I'm not really sure or what we believe to be the right thing. I'm not really sure how you go wrong. Yeah. I think it just all stems from empathy as being able to put yourself in that person's shoes and understand going back to your, you know, scenario, um, that it's, you know, it's not personal, you know, and if it is, then there's nothing you can change about it. Then it's kind of like, okay, then just take a punch and move on. But for the most part, I don't think people even mean it to be intentional towards you. It's just they have an attitude. They have something going on in their life. And I think by just recognizing that and being like, hey, it's okay. I get it. You want to talk about it? What's going on? It's like it's crazy how that can reshape the conversation. Yep. Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I've I've started this actually incredibly young. We have a 10-month-old. And, uh, you know, they don't know what they're really angry about. They know, you know, just getting angry gets a reaction. And so that's like their first thing to figure out is like, all right, I'm upset about this. I'm going to say, I'm going to yell about it and I'm going to get a reaction out of mom or dad. Somebody's going to do something. And, uh, I still like, well, even though, you know, I know he doesn't necessarily understand every word I'm saying, but I'll, I'll smile at him and I'll be like, it's okay to be angry and mad at whatever happened, but it's going to be okay. And you shouldn't be angry at me. Like you can be angry at whatever, but don't take it out on me or somebody else. And usually it's funny, even though he's 10 months old, that usually changes because I'm smiling at him. Like my outward appearance is making him want to reflect that. 
And so it's making him want to change his action to also be happy. Mm -hmm. Well, and if you think about it, that that 10 month old has more resilience than most 20 year olds Mm -hmm. because he doesn't understand quitting. Yeah. He lets you know he's unhappy and he adapts to behavior based on what the feedback he's getting, whether it's from you or the situation. And he continues to push forward towards what he's looking to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, you know, the way we raise children and I, and I don't think it's a new thing. I think this is like from, from a long time ago, we, we breed resiliency out of the human condition. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, that's true. Humans are incredibly resilient from birth, right? You don't see a, uh, a, 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 a one-year-old or, or 10-month-old, you know, trying to walk. You know, he's trying, he's trying, he falls down like 50 times. And he goes, screw it, I'm not walking. Yeah, <laughs> uh, just not worth it, right? They continue to, <laughs> yep. to try and do more. And, and over time, we condition uh, humans to be less resilient, to give up, um, uh, to, to not adapt, to, to, um, to just accept. And I, I think that's kind of dangerous. So I think your 10-month-old is way ahead of... <laughs> Uh, and, and the way you're raising them and look, the, the older I got, the better father I was. Um, I, I think about, you know, how are we preparing that next generation yeah. to, to make the human condition better? Well, you heard it first. JC just said that, uh, 10 month year old babies are better than 20 year olds. Yeah. So all you bitching and moaning about nothing happening. Look, look, they're better than 50. I'm almost 50. They're, they're better than 50 year olds. I mean, it's interesting they, though. No, they, think they are resilient. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. Cause I always think about, I never thought about this even five years ago, but the older I get, even now in my thirties, I start thinking about, yeah, the future generation, like what, what's that going to look like? doesn't look good right now, but who knows? I mean, it's kind of like, I say that, but I also see that there's a lot of goodness and there's a lot of people that still want to bring people together, you know, make technology advance in a good way. So you never really know where it's going to go, but it's, it's interesting how things are changing. Yeah. It, it, it kind of comes full circle. It's funny. Um, I was just, um, interacting with Jordan on, uh, LinkedIn and, uh, his brother for their, their company was posting something. It was like, you know, money can be used for good and for evil. Mm-hmm. And his conversation is, is technology the same? And I said, absolutely. Everything's the same. How you commun- communicate to people, the, the technology, the time, the money, how you utilize it and how it affects others is what makes it evil. Mm. It's not necessarily the thing, the tangible thing. Like, yes, there are some things out there that I think everybody could agree are just terrible like the uh, nuclear bombs and and uh, atomic bombs and things like that like that there's no reason for it other than it cause mass destruction to environments to people to civilizations whatever it is like that's just bad 
but it's also a deterrent. So I guess you could say maybe it's a little bit of a good thing, but I think in most people's eyes, it's not. Um, but that's the conversation I was having is, is it doesn't matter what it is. It's how you use it and the empathy you have and the realize realization is how, how it affects somebody else is what makes it evil. So, so I think that when we talk about good and evil and probably 99% of the people listening to this will disagree with me and I'm okay with that. <laughs> good and evil are values that we put on things Yep, mm. and they have absolutely no relation to truth, right? Things just are a nuclear weapon just is, it's not good. It's not evil. It just exists. And we put, um, we put a value on it based on our perspective, right? So let's look at, let, let, let's, let's shrink it down and forget about, you know, nuclear weapons. Let's talk about what we did in the regiment. Can we not agree that there are people in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria that think we are evil? Oh yeah. Right. They, and, and you know what? From from their perspective, if I look at it, they're not incorrect. Yeah, mm-hmm. they absolutely have reason to believe that what we did and who we are is evil. But in the United States, we're like, oh no, we're heroes. Everything we did was good. Good and evil is a value placed on people with different perspectives, as opposed to okay, a thing is. Now, what do I do with this? thing, right? So the the same formula that creates a nuclear weapon also is the same formula to harness energy that we just haven't figured out how to do. Mm -hmm. So I look at that and go, okay, it's just, it just is. And how I'm going to use it, you know, from my own perspective is either good or bad. Yeah. But that's not absolute. There are no absolutes, right? I, I talk about this sometimes and it's, it's a little unpopular, but you know, we, we can sit there and we can say, well, if you do this, everyone would agree that no, that's wrong. Yeah. Except I've been to cultures where they think that's okay. Mm-hmm. So I think what we have to do is, we have to recognize that things are kind of at a null uh, value. And then we have to think about what do we, from our perspective, want to do with it. There's this great story. I encourage everybody to, uh, to read it. Uh, Harvard Business Review. It's called The Parable of the Sadhu. And it's about this, you know, this, these, these folks are climbing Everest and, you know, an Everest climb is obviously very expensive Mm -hmm. and they're on their way and they find this monk out in the middle of this glacial area, just in his robes. And he's about, you know, he's, he's going to die of exposure and they, you know, there's this moral conundrum of what do we need to do to take care of him? And the one question that's never asked is this is a guy who's from this region knows what it's like out there. Why was he out there? 
maybe he wanted to die. Mm -hmm. And we intervene because from a Western perspective, we have to save him. Mm -hmm. And quite honestly, if you read the article, you, we don't we want to save him sort of. And, and, and I just think that we need to think about these things and where we, you know, we're human. So we want the easy answer. We want the, oh, well, that's, that's evil. Well, that's good. That's, and, and we want that. And that gives us that, that makes us feel better mm -hmm. as opposed to look, things are, things are bespoke to different situations and we have to be really thoughtful. Uh, and I'm not saying if somebody says, well, that's wrong and this is what I'm going to do. That's okay. Just understand that there's another perspective. Yeah. It's interesting that you said that too, is like, I, I feel like a lot of civilization, especially now we're kind of coming back full circle where tribalism is becoming real again in the, in the virtual environment where it's so easy to find your tribe now. And it's so easy to classify people. And mm -hmm. it's so easy to to say whether you should or should not agree with somebody and to classify whether if somebody doesn't believe one thing that you believe that they're evil. And I feel like we're almost taking a step back in many ways because of that, because of that new exposure. And so it's really great to have these conversations and, and you know, to have people who hopefully will listen to this and take it to heart is like to, to feel that empathy and to, to understand and put yourself in those shoes. Cause like you said, I'm, I'm imagining, I haven't read the article, but the people that were on that, uh, summit or, or trying to achieve the summit were like, I can't believe this guy's out here that he's out here without a robe. And now I got to save his life. I can't believe this. Like it's ruining the entire day. <laughs> and I bet they were thinking that. And they were like, I, I invested, you know, thousands of dollars into this. And I can't believe now I'm going to have to save this guy and I can't summit Everest. And I'm probably never going to do it again. Like somebody probably had that perspective, almost guaranteed. And but then the 100%. other, the flip coin of that is what you were saying. Maybe that guy wanted to be there. Maybe he he wasn't looking for somebody to save him. That's how I look at. It. I always, you know, don't get your nose in people's business. <laughs> well, well, at least well, monks' think, business. You know, I think, I think I think that's really important. Is you know, let's look at something that's topical. And again. Probably not going to make me real popular, but that's okay. Um, can I imagine that somebody is born in a way that anatomically they would be male, but but their psychological state says that they're female? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I absolutely can can imagine that and believe that. Can I also imagine? that there are people that don't believe that could be. I yeah. think that's, that's possible too. And you know what? Neither one is bad. Mm -hmm. Neither person is bad. Yeah, true. And until we get to a point where we go, I can totally see how this could happen. And I accept that. And I can totally see how you feel this way. And I accept that. It's when we start to vilify. Uh, 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 an idea, a population with no inquiry, right? Like, why does that, why, why do you believe that that's not possible? Or why does that bother you? 
or why do you feel this way? Until we start asking some questions and we just vilify, then we're on these, these huge schisms that, that there is no conversation, right? Mm-hmm. We, uh, the three of us can agree racism is absolutely a negative thing. Mm-hmm. If you believe that you're better than somebody else based on the color of your skin, that doesn't make sense to us. Yep. That said, when I meet somebody who believes that, I want to know why. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is interesting. I don't just want to vilify them and say, well, you're wrong because that certainly isn't going to win. Mm-hmm. I'd like to, I'd like to go. Hey, so why, why do you think this? Why do you think you're better based on the pigment of your skin? Um, and, and I want to have that conversation instead of this, this, the shaming of people and making them feel like they're horrible just because I don't agree with it. And I think it, I, and I think it is wrong. Mm-hmm. I want to know why they're thinking it. Yeah, I think it's important to get down to the root of all things. And I think you're right, especially nowadays, we don't. We just kind of shame people immediately if they believe in something outside of what we believe in. Like if something sounds off, like if I say, you know, I'm a Christian male, and then someone's like, well, I don't believe in God. And then I'm just like, oh, how can you not believe in God? Like, you're wrong. You're going to hell. It's like the most, I want to get more in depth and be like, why is that? Why don't you believe in God? What's led you down this path of not believing in a higher power? And I'm going to respect you no matter what you're just, you know, what you tell me you believe in or you don't believe in. But yeah, I don't know. I think that's a better way of kind of going about things where it can reduce so much conflict with people. Well, it goes back you know, to. And that's, that's a tough part with, with kind of the veteran community. Because mm-hmm. I think that we believe what we believe is, is right. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying when we come across somebody who doesn't believe what we believe, let's ask why they don't believe that. Yeah. Um, well, we're going to, we're going to come back around to some to okay. coaching and leadership stuff, but I, I did want to touch, uh, to kind of, uh, to, to not to wrap up your service, but to kind of, kind of come full circle with your service is, uh, you also served in a very cool unit that was is relatively new to the army. Um, the, uh, asymmetrical warfare group. Um, a lot of people don't even know it exists. They don't know what they do. I didn't know what it was. And, uh, I know what they do, but I was wondering if you, if you could share a little bit about what they do, what their mission is and and kind of what brought you into that unit. So, uh, so the army is, um, I think they're shuttering, uh, the unit, uh, this year. Um, the focus of the unit was to identify emerging asymmetric threats Mm -hmm. and figure out how to defeat them or defeat them directly. Um, I got there kind of in a roundabout way. I, um, I went to, um, SFOD selection and, uh, tore my knee up Mm -hmm. and, uh, Greg Birch, who was the the regimental um, sergeant major and had been a, 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 a staple in the regiment in both uh, Delta, um, was the first sergeant major of the asymmetric warfare group. Mm. And um, Dan Allen was, I think, 
the at the G three, he was general. You know, he ended up becoming the vice chief of staff, um, who had been the third range of battalion battalion commander. And when I got hurt, the army was going to like send me to I don't know, like somewhere in Texas to do something that I didn't want to do. Um, and they said, "Look, you want to go to selection to go to this place." And I went to selection and was lucky enough to be selected. And the focus was to look at what the enemy was, not just what they were doing, but what they were going to do and figure out what are the ways that we can not just get ahead of them, but get like three steps ahead of them. So it was an incredible opportunity to just think on a totally different level. Yeah. Uh, for the for for not just the army but for the joint force what i um, it was terrific what i kind of always thought of it and maybe you have a completely diff- different perspective because you you obviously serve there but i always thought of it as like um uh the brains of of the army of the military like coming together and i always thought of it as like m's group within you know the double uh, o program that was coming up with crazy mm. devices and different ways of doing things and uh, that's the way I always like envisioned it in my brain. Yeah, it was like the think tank, right? Yeah. It was it was a big think tank that was actually on the ground with the enemy. It oh, was wow. it was awesome. Yeah, I loved it. So you mentioned you personally went through some struggles in the service, and I'm kind of curious what led to them and how did you overcome those. So which struggles are we talking about? Because I struggled all the time. (laughs) Which were, I guess, you know, what were the main kind of struggles that you dealt with that uh, maybe you see yourself with others that have struggled in the same shoes? Like the the biggest struggle I faced was when I stopped deploying. Mm. Um, That was the hardest thing for me is to understand purpose beyond uh, deploying and you know, whether it was closing with and destroying the enemy or closing with and understanding the enemy. When you, when you stop doing that, your sense of purpose is shaken. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think that was my first struggle is, um, not understanding the purpose or not even valuing a purpose because 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 i think i had purpose um beyond deploying but i'm not sure that i valued it as much and and understanding that and valuing it that was difficult for me mm-hmm. um and and i really struggled a, a, a lot I think it, it it's similar to what you said in the beginning. And, and I, I think there's so many parallels between like um, professional sports and even collegiate athletes and um, you know, what, what people do in special operations. Cause there is a, a, a pretty strenuous selection process that it doesn't matter what branch or what area in special operations you are. Like you, you have to go through a lot to get there. And then it, it's almost, you know, equivalent. I think if, you know, you were a surgeon, a neurosurgeon or something like that, and you were trained your whole life to be a neurosurgeon. And then that was stripped from you. It, it's, it's a lot of the same sort of parallels where you, you felt like you had one purpose, one job, one responsibility, and you did it for so long and then it's not there. And what's the next uh, step? 
Yeah, I think I think you're spot on. And and that was that was really really difficult. And I, I think initially when I when I you know so my last deployment was in uh, 2011. Um, I think nobody really understood because they were like, oh well, you've done you know, you've been there, you've done that. It, it, you know, um, people don't feel bad unless they haven't been there or they've been there and they haven't been successful or, or they've been afraid or whatever. They didn't understand that, like the, the good and the bad about being in these amazing units was your identity was tied to what you did. Mm-hmm. So who you are, is what you did as opposed to who you are is just who you are. I'm curious, why do you think people who, you know, serve in combat like that, why do you think that that's a reoccurring thing that people miss these deployments? Is it because it's kind of like the, is it the adrenaline? Is it the camaraderie? Like what is it that really makes you miss being on deployment? Well, I think it's different for everybody. I I don't know that anybody has the same kind of perspective. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think for me, um, and I've talked to some folks, and I think they that they felt one is um, it's very clear. There's no ambiguity, right? Your you, your your task is clear. The adversary is clear. Um, the methodology is clear. I mean, it quite honestly, it's just very simple. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not as complex as, you know, where's your kid going to go to school? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. I mean, gotcha. if you think about it, it, we think it's this really in depth, intense, it, 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 the, there's no complexity. Mm-hmm. It, it's quite, quite clear. And I think that, you know, one of the, one of the frustrations I had was I could do this stuff that was seen as really intense and, you know, an, an adaptive enemy and, and not necessarily a well-defined enemy and a solution that's not well-defined, but taxes. Holy crap. I hate that's, taxes. Right? Like, God, it's like how do I do thing. that? That's, that's completely foreign. So I think there was that piece of it. And I think that, you know, um, we see ourselves, you know, as these, um, as a Greek hero, as opposed to Latin heroes, but Greek heroes who, you know, we do these special things that other people don't do. And when we stop doing those, as Odysseus, you know, struggled with, who are we? If I'm not doing this, who am I? And I think that's a, I, I think that's a, that's a harsh reality that I'm not sure people who haven't served have to face. Mm-hmm. And it, it is one that hits you right in the face uh, when you serve is, okay, I don't do this. So who am I? Mm-hmm. And I, I think I talked about it on a, on a previous podcast too, is like, I, for me personally, and like you said, everybody's experience is different is I feel like all the distractions go away. So it's very easy to get into your flow state. 
it's very oh, easy yeah. to get to your your you know you know exactly what you're doing exactly what the mission set is yes the situation around it changes but your overall mission objective the team you're around never changes and so it's very easy to just be in that flow state all the other distractions melt away like you said taxes what your kids are doing what your family's doing all that stuff just is in the background it becomes fuzzy you don't have to worry yeah. about it that sounds pretty nice yeah and uh oh it is <laughs> it's, i mean it's 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 an interesting thing people talk about it all the time is like combat's beautiful in a lot of different ways because you can focus on you know what makes yourself what makes your team what makes those around you so great mm -hmm. and it it brings all that to the forefront it shows you night and day cut and dry like what that is what that looks like and you're putting into practice everything that you've been training on everything that you've been gearing your whole you know career up to that point towards and i'm, I'm really glad that you you hit on this that you felt the same way because a lot of people who maybe only go went to one deployment, only served for four years, like they see the same thing. And a lot of people think it's, well, you know, this, this person's just broken. They're looking for something or whatever the case may be, but it doesn't matter if you serve for four years or you serve for 30 years, we all have the same experience. We all have the same sort of, again, it's different, but we all have that same sort of mentality coming out of it and looking for that purpose. Well, we'll think about this. And this is why, you know, I do think that um, professional sports are most closely related to what we did. Talk about a singularity of focus, mm -hmm. right? All I have to do is be good at this. Yeah. Everything else will be taken care of. You don't have to think about it. Just be good at this. And I don't know that there's another other than professional athletics. I, I don't think there's any other place in the world you get that, yeah. but in the military. And when that's taken away, you're kind of like, oh, okay, now what? And I think that's tough. That, that kind of goes into uh, my next topic is, you know, outside of the struggles that you've faced in military service, you've done some really amazing things outside of your service um, as far as just coaching and leadership engagements that you've had with professional sports teams. What was that like for you? You know, I, I really, I value my time with, um, you know, the last uh, five and a half years have been spectacular with whether it's corporate or professional teams mm -hmm. is being able to provide a perspective that I think is lost. Um, look, we come from a, from a culture that again, let's go back to the beginning of our conversation beats. It's just a lot. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, we have, um, I'll call them peers who talk about, uh, Hey, you got to attack the day and get up at four 30 and, you know, <laughs> be a level seven berserker, you know, and, and that's level that's seven not, berserker. <laughs> yeah. That that's, that's not, uh, that that's not life. And no. that's not, 
that that's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, I, I, I get to share with, with, uh, with leaders that losses not born of, uh, negligence or okay. Um, and, and I was taught that by amazing leaders, uh, Rich Clark, who's now the SOCOM commander, who was able to explain to me that a mistake that I made that was not born of negligence, even if it, even if we lost life to drive on, to learn from it and continue forward, um, where we, we look at life in the, in the private sector, we look at loss in the private sector as like this devastating blow mm-hmm. as opposed to it's a bump mm-hmm. we'll drive forward and if yeah. it's not born of negligence we'll just continue to move forward it's it's interesting because uh, what you're you were speaking to at the beginning these like um some of the military and i, I don't want to classify anything i don't really i mm. don't want it at all but a lot of the military personas that are put out there a lot of people I feel like want to see challenge and see that it's achievable and they want to do that. But the same challenge for one person is not achievable for the next. And yes, you can, and and it can be specifically to physical limitations. It could be to financial limitations. It could be whatever the case may be. And it's not to say that you shouldn't dream and, and, want to conquer the world, but there are clearly some things that are out there that people are trying to show that people can do this day in and day out, that it's just not feasible. And I think that's what people are grasping to is they, they see something that's like, wow, this, this person is really tough. Like they're doing something incredible and I want to be like them. I want to do exactly what they're doing. Well, they're living their whole life to share that persona, to show that side of it. And they're getting paid for it and they should be, I mean, to a certain extent. But I think to take a step back and realize like that is what they're doing. That's their their purpose. Like it's to motivate people to a certain extent, but you're not them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, so first of all, I think you got to look at, and, and I think you hit it exactly on the head, right? Their job is to motivate, motivate, motive. Um, the Latin means to physically move, mm-hmm. right? So to, to so if I take this this glass and I go from here to here, that's motive. I physically moved it, and that has a shelf life, quite honestly, mm-hmm. because I can't move physically move people for long periods of time. I can do it for short durations. What I need to be able to do is inspire people. And yeah. that the, the Latin form of that is inspire, which means to breathe fire or life into, mm. Mm. right? So what you wanna do is inspire people so that they're, that they're doing, that they're executing, that they're believing in what's going on. And, and we've, we've got it wrong and, and our peers in the special operations community have it wrong, uh, or at least some of them do when they think it's about, uh, how early you get up or how hard you work. Mm -hmm. It's really about how much do you care? Mm 
Mm -hmm. That is really what matters in success. How much do you care? The more you care, the better you will do. The more you care for others, the better you will do. Um, the tougher you are, look, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I'm six to 250 pounds. I can only move X. But you know what? If I breathe life into others, I can move the world. Yeah. And, and that's what people have to understand. You can, uh, you can definitely tell that JC is into Greek mythology. <laughs> it's funny because even like, you know, on the cover of, of your book, you know, Meditations of an Army Ranger, is it a Spartan helmet that you have on there? Uh, it is. Yeah. It is. I noticed it kind is. of a lot of things that you're referencing. Um, it's really interesting. And to kind of go into that. By the way, that was designed by, by Joel Carpenter, First Ranger Battalion. Was it really? Nice. Yep. Another guy we met up with in Texas for the no, book. That's right. I actually so I don't want to uh, leave him out. <laughs> I just got off the phone with him today. Actually, he recommended uh, uh, another guy, a friend of his name, Nate, who lives in Texas, and he's like, "You got to get this guy involved." Um, so, yeah, Joel's a great guy. But to kind of go even more to follow up for my first question, um, I want to kind of get into more on your personal, tr you know, transition. And obviously, you've written two books. Uh, you're working on two more and a third one may even become, which is a paper may become your fifth book. Was that personally kind of like more of a coping method was writing, helping you with transition or was it amongst other things as well? No, that was amongst other things. Okay. Uh, writing was a duty to me. Mm -hmm. Right. So when, so, um, uh, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate. I was just, uh, invited I, I, I don't even think I told you guys when you were here. Mm. Um, I was just invited to speak at the, um, the stoic, uh, military conference, the international stoic That's uh, awesome. conference. And you know, what's really cool about the stoics, right? The people who started philosophy, right? Socrates, uh, you know, Plato, mm -hmm. um, Socrates was a hoplite. He was a warrior. Mm -hmm. The reason he understood living a good life and, and resilience and thoughtfulness was because he had been a warrior. And when, um, when I got out, I realized that we had created this idea that philosophy was for academics and it was thought oriented. And that is not what philosophy was meant to be. Philosophy was meant to be for all people. And it was meant to be action oriented. How do I live my life? And the people that fortunately or unfortunately get to see the best and the worst of human life are warriors. Yeah. And so when I, when I realized there were things that I got to experience that 99% of the population doesn't get to experience. It's my responsibility as, as a citizen of the world to share that. Mm -hmm. uh, not right or wrong, just a perspective. Um, and so, so the writing, um, really became what I thought was a duty. Okay. 
Like that, that wasn't a help in transition or hindrance. It was just, I, we can't think that there are these academics in ivory towers who experience a very limited amount of world. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that's good or bad, but they have their perspective. Mm -hmm. And then there are those of us that have lived this, a, a life that's, that's different. And we have a responsibility to share the things that we've learned, right? What is the difference between honesty and integrity? Um, you know, what are the characteristics that I think are important in leadership based on the best and worst in uh, uh, of human interaction? We have a responsibility to share those ideas. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's where kind of the, the writing started. Um, and then it has continued to evolve in this yeah. idea. Philosophers should not be purely academics. Mm -hmm. Philosophers should be people who have lived a life and continue to try to grow and continue to try to be the best people they can be and lift others while they climb. That's interesting. And what was, I guess, personally, I guess now that we, you know, know where the books come from and what motivated that, what was personally, you know, your adjustment, like back to the civilian community, was it a little bit more difficult? Was it a little bit easier than others? Yeah. yeah I talk about, um, I talk about there's three transitions. Mm -hmm. There's the transition where you stop deploying and doing your job. Right. And we've talked about that earlier on. The second transition is where you stop wearing the uniform. That's, um, you can set yourself up to be very successful. And I think the military has got a program. Um, you know, I, I, I think there are enough programs out there that that may be kind of, uh, not the most difficult. Mm -hmm. but but i think for for some i think a lot of people think that's the most difficult i i think that's just a quite honestly it's it's a uh it's a costume change yeah mm -hmm. right it's from wearing a uniform to wearing a button down um i think that then there's this third transition which is now once you're out for a little while who are you Mm -hmm. Right. There's a third transition of, of, you know, who am I, what's important to me and what have I accomplished in the time since I've been out, you know, and I, I think that third transition tends to hit in about five or six years, maybe four, five years, um, where you're reflecting upon your civilian civ sector experience, um, and identifying kind of like, what have you learned mm -hmm. um, from, uh, you know, what have you taken from your military experience, whether that was four years or whether that was 30 years? And then what have you done since then? And for some of us, you know, for me, I know that I, I recognized quickly that I was like, ooh, shit, I kind of lived off of my 20 years of experience yeah. for a majority of that. So, so now 
reorienting that lens to say, okay, what have I done in the, in the last few years that, that make me a good teammate? Um, and, and how do I see myself now as opposed to JC Glick, former army ranger? Okay. Now I'm JC Glick author or JC Glick, you know, Liberty fellow or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. How, how do I define myself and what does that mean? So I think, I think those are, those are the things that I've thought most about in uh, certainly within the last year. Yeah. Maybe the pandemic helped with that. It's interesting that you said those three things. Cause I, I'm like replaying the last, you know, eight, nine years in my mind. And that's exactly it. Like that transition spells out exactly what I've been going through. Like I, I initially got out, I was in the National Guard, I was still going you know, to school simultaneously, so it did, never went away fully, but that first transition of I'm no longer deploying, I'm no longer with the best of the best. I'm trying to now create some of the best of the best by being an OCS uh, instructor, so that helped in some regards and kind of filling some of that void. But then I went through after that where I pushed off everything. I didn't talk about my military service with anybody. I just was like that I'm in that second transition phase where you know, I'm no longer deploying, I'm separated from service. Nobody needs to hear about it. I don't really have anything to tell or to gain from, you know, re- relying on that service. And now I'm 7 8 years transitioned and I'm going right back. I'm like, no, there are so many important life lessons and traits that I gained in the military service that I was a fool to push them off. Like I understand that that was my process, but I was a fool to push them off. And I think that's kind of where my message is to a lot of people that hopefully, you know, read the book, listen to the podcast, all those different things that they hear these stories and they they understand like everybody's transition sucks. I don't think... Mm -hmm. No matter how much somebody says, oh, their transition was fairly easy, I guarantee it still sucked. They still had some like pinch points and some things that they look back as like, man, that could have been a lot easier. I made it harder on myself or whatever the case may be. But, you know, to understand that your military service does not define you, you are a person who wore a military uniform, but you gained a lot of skills and traits that have defined you, that you should carry forward with you and that you should lean on to be a better person. Yeah, look, so it, it, it's so funny. Um, I'm, I'm going to this uh, uh, Tuck, uh, so Tuck, which is Dartmouth uh, Business School. They have this program, Next Step, which um, puts um, veterans with uh, athletes. Mm. They tend to be Olympians. Um, and I was listening to an interaction between a person who's about to get out, um, may or may not be the same rank that I was when I got out. And I listened to them talk to a person and I went, oh my gosh. Yeah, I used to talk to people like that. That's really fucked up. <laughs> um, and they're not bad people. It's just like, oh my gosh, I did exactly that same thing. Like you get used to it. Right. So you're like, you're in this, this mentality. And I think, you know, there's this balance of, of this, uh, 
wanting to be recognized, right? You, mm. it, it's not about being recognized for what you've done. It's about taking what you've done and making it meaningful for everyone else, mm-hmm. right? So, so what I did, I'm very comfortable. Like I didn't do that for mom or apple pie or, you know, the guy in the street or anything like, yeah, I did that for you. No, I didn't. I did it for me and for the people I was with. <laughs> I did it because I liked it. So that's not it. But those things that I did have to have meaning beyond what they were. Yeah. Right. Because the political landscape has changed, right? We're going to pull out of Iraq. We're going to pull out of Afghanistan. And I can choose to think, oh, well, then everything I did was for not. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not the case. The things that I did had absolute meaning. And it's about ongoing meaning not living in the past, but living in the present and the future. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just, I got to ask you, like, do all your podcasts get like this deep? No, no. no that's no, what no. I think is we, interesting okay. about this one. We So I, I knew that this one was going to get deep because, you know, just, just from the limited interaction that we have had with you, you know, from the first few times that we had a, a video conference and phone calls with you, mm-hmm. and then finally meeting you in person, like I knew that this was the podcast we were going to have. I yeah. knew this is the podcast we needed to have, and this is the one that people needed to listen to. And I knew, you know, this is another thing uh, that I don't have a question about, but is really important for people to to take into account is like it's easy for people to see you to to see that you're an officer and, and correct me if I'm wrong but I think you're a full blown colonel right no, lieutenant lieutenant, lieutenant colonel. colonel okay a lieutenant colonel but regardless separating from service carrying an officer's rank like carries a lot with it and I think what you have done is the right thing is you could easily take that rank and go be a business executive somewhere very easily, I feel like, in a lot of different regards. That's what a lot of officers end up doing. But to take your position and your rank and your experience and try and share that knowledge to make people better, that is ultimately, the, I feel like, the more appropriate step. That is the one that's going to have a greater effect and yeah. can change the world. Like you said, you you may not be able to change the world as a whole entirely at once, but you change one person's life at a time and eventually you will change the world. And I think that is the most noble thing that, you know, somebody who carry who does carry your rank doesn't look for what's the price tag of how much money I can make when I separate from service, but how can I create the most change and most impact in people's lives? Yeah. And I think to touch on what Dan said is that every podcast is so unique with each person. So there's not really like a formula there's some to an extent to follow. Obviously, we want to tell everybody's military career and their experience and their transition because that's the main premise of this, you know, this show. But it's also, yeah, fuck, I kind of knew that this thing was going to go deep too because I knew that you had a lot of humility behind everything that we talked about in person. And there were so many like just topics and points that we were touching on that night that I was like, we need to have JC on a podcast because yep. this is the kind of shit that I think we've been wanting to tell. And everybody has, like I said, their own story and everybody so far has told such a unique perspective of their experience in the military and their transition. But it's interesting to also hear it from 
somebody like yourself to where every question we've had and every topic we've gone into, it's been more like real life and consequence and connecting with others. And I think that, you know, that kind of goes into the next point of, you know, when we were there, you mentioned that the word purpose is a fallacy and how veterans and transition are more so looking for connection. What kind of brought you to that, you know, ideology and perspective? Um, so, so I don't think it's just veterans. I think it's, there's just people, Mm -hmm. right. Um, and that's, you had mentioned the paper that, that I'm kind of working on that may became, become a book where, um, I looked at Maslow's hierarchy of needs and said, yeah, I think he got this wrong. Um, I think that there is an entanglement of human requirements, right? Mm -hmm. Hierarchy means it goes a, B, C, D to the top. Mm-hmm. And I think there's this jumble of stuff that, that gets us to kind of feel like whole humans. And the, the root of that is not purpose. The root of that is connection, connecting to another person. And I believe that if we have a connection then the purpose is almost immaterial. We'll, we'll connect over a purpose, but a purpose by ourselves tends to not be as meaningful. We want that purpose to be linked to other people. So truthfully, the, the, uh, what, what humans need at the root level is they need this connection. And then, mm-hmm. then I believe that there's other things like acceptance and all this, you know, and kind of things that I'm, I'm working out in this paper, but um, this idea that, you know, we continue to look for purpose, purpose, purpose. I'm not saying that's bad. If if you feel you're achieving your purpose, God bless you. That's awesome. But what we really want is a connection with other humans. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, many times that purpose can be negative, right? I mean, look at the Third Reich, right? People ask all the time, like, well, how could a whole bunch of good people believe that this was the right way? Because they were connected. They were connected by, you know, they they, they were told and they believed that they were part of this group and that made it special. So their purpose was really immaterial and could be negative. In fact, I think we have to be really thoughtful on, on what the purpose is and why we're going towards a purpose because what we really tend to want is connection. Mm-hmm. It's, um, yeah, that's really interesting. Like people. It's, a, it's the same idea why a lot of people um, you know, were recruited for ISIS and things like that is because they, they connected with them on social media. They watched the videos. They 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 their mindset got changed they didn't care yes they may have said a bunch of different things about you know yeah what they're doing that's what i want to do but in all reality the reason why isis and a lot of other ideological ideological groups are successful is because they do build that that connection with people it's like i'm just like you a lot of times they address their videos like brothers and sisters friends you know what i mean it's always like you are me you're with me Mm -hmm. and that's how they start off the videos. And so I'm glad you kind of 
pull that perspective of of you know how did the third reich happen and a lot of people have that idea of like how do these terrorist organizations you know spawn up how do how do these things happen and i think you're absolutely right it's not necessarily the message or the purpose behind it it's that needing to feel connected and so it's having to then you know not have having to go into like terrorist organizations and things like that and how they start up but it's interesting having that perspective and, and realizing, you know, how can we take that same sort of ideology to make the veteran community feel more connected or make the professional sports teams post, you know, time that they're on a team feel connected? Or how can we take the retirees and the people that are no longer doing their job feel connected? I think that's probably why a lot of retirement communities and things like that are so successful because they're like, all these people are similar to me. They just served, you know, for 35 years doing whatever job. And I'm just like them. We can share a lot of the same things. And I think you're exactly right. It's much more about that connection than it is the purpose behind it. It's, it's all that without the narcissism. <laughs> well, I think, and I think what we need to do and look, you know, we, we just watched, uh, in professional football, a, a, a young man kill himself because mm -hmm. of a lack of connection. Um, we certainly see that in the veteran community where I, I don't care whose stats you're looking at, whether it's 17 to 23 veterans a day, I, I, I you know, I'm many. not going to quibble about numbers. Um, we're, 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 we have a bunch of people and look, I, I'm not a joiner. I don't want to be like part of a group, but I need to define my people. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really important when veterans transition, they're so quick to be like, oh, I'm out. I'm away from the draconian or I'm away from whatever. Yeah. But you're also away from a community that you felt a part of. Mm -hmm. and you got to find your people yep. and you know um in world war ii you know there was the american legion the vfw and we're very different than that right because quite honestly the vfw which is changing considerably but the vfw and the american legion i mean my grandfather was a part of both of them they revolved around a bar Mm -hmm. Right. They've revolved around alcohol and the GWAT veteran is physically fit and very in tune with mindfulness and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, kind of what would be considered, uh, alternative practices. Um, but you need to find something that, that fits that, uh, that veteran. So there are organizations, you know, team red, white, and blue merging vets and players that, that kind of are focused around kind of the, the physical aspect mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, of the veteran. And I think that, um, the, the sooner veterans understand that, look, this is something I need. Um, and it doesn't revolve around going to the, to the hall where the bar is. It revolves around, uh, the physical aspect of it, which then leads to the mental aspect of it and the connection piece. I, I think we're, we're going to be better off. It's interesting. Cause I mean, this is probably an obvious, but 
I'm assuming that's just that's that that's a huge contributing factor into suicide is the lack of connection that the people feel. Mm -hmm. It's not the purpose thing. It's it's kind of like what you said, and that makes sense now. That the more I think about it, that it's difficult to find your purpose when you're constantly sitting there saying, "I don't know what the fuck that means." Like, I don't know what my purpose is. What is it? Stop telling me that because I don't know what it is. And it just drives people insane when they hear that over and over. But they lack that connection with other human beings, other veterans or civilians for that matter. And from what it sounds like from you, you know, you'd probably know more about it. But it sounds like that's probably the number one, if not number two leading factor into the veteran suicide rates. No, I, I, I think you just hit it on the head, brother. And, um, you know, I... I attempted suicide four times. Wow. And it was this idea of, well, it's purpose, it's purpose, it's, you know, I don't, and I was, and that, that became kind of my, my mantra. Well, I don't have a purpose. Mm -hmm. I don't have a purpose. I'm, I'm making my family's life, my, you know, I am angry all the time. I'm sad all the time. I'm frustrated all the time. My, I'm not making the life of my children um, uh, good. And what it really was is I didn't feel connected. Mm -hmm. And that was even when I was in, um, because I was, and I loved the people that I was working with, but I didn't feel connected. I, Mm -hmm. I felt, um, uh, disjointed from, from, I didn't think it was things were understood, right? Even when I went and talked to Sykes, right? They wanted to box me into, oh, well, you have God complex. Well, you have, well, you have this anxiety because you were afraid. And I'm like, yeah, I wasn't. And I don't. That neither of those things mm-hmm. are the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took a while before it was, it was clear of, there was some self-care stuff that I needed to do that we weren't so good at in the military at the time. Um, and then there was, uh, this idea of thinking that you're alone in this, Mm -hmm. right? Like, ah, I'm the, I'm such a loser. I'm the only guy that feels like this. Mm -hmm. Now, what a, what a piece of crap am I? Cause you know, I feel like this, everybody else is getting along just fine. Or, well, if they feel bad, it's because of this and I don't feel guilty and I don't feel like a God complex. So what's wrong with me? Yeah. It's, and, it, it's tough. It, you know, I, cause I, I took my two psychology classes or something in, in college and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that makes my, you as qualified as any psych. <laughs> I saw. So I, uh, but I remember we we did a whole thing on on suicide, and it's funny because I remember drawing a lot of parallels. The army did start doing a lot of things, suicide prevention awareness and things like that. Um, and I'm sure they did it across the board with all the military. Um, and I actually remember multiple stand downs. Uh, basically, stand down is where they they call off all training. Nobody's allowed to do anything. It's kind of a day to just reflect internally to the unit, focus on family, focus on whatever it is. But like, it's not about going out to the range or whatever. Mm. And I remember multiple of those. But um, like you said, that the two things that I, I remember they always said over and over again, they said it in the training, they said it in my psychology classes is is that lack of, of losing uh, to have that helplessness and hopelessness feeling. And the the immediate thing that stands out to me is you're right. You have a connection to somebody again 
and you don't feel hopeless, somebody's giving you hope. You don't feel helpless because somebody's there with you. Yes, there's times where like you still have to find it from within to make a decision to feel better, to get better, to get out of bed, to work out, to uh, to reflect, to meditate, whatever the case may be. But having somebody there, you know, push you along the way is absolutely necessary. And it's it's again having that connection and realizing, you know what, this person's here with me. This person's here for me. I can do this. Yeah. And, and JC, what are some examples that you would say are, you know, our connection? Like, how can these people find that connection? You know, I think it's different for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I will say that, you know, organizations like, like merging vets and players, certainly, um, look, it, how great is it? It's the way we initially connected. Yep. Um, yeah. but you know, I now have friends who, who played, you know, 15 years in the NFL who understand how I feel and I understand how they felt mm-hmm. and we're able to connect on that. And, um, you know, it's really about kind of opening up, being a little vulnerable, um, and finding your people because in the military, our people were given to us. We took it for granted, mm-hmm. right? We wound up in the 75th Ranger Regiment and whether you're in first battalion, second battalion, third battalion, like those were your people. Mm-hmm. This was, these were my people. And, and as a civilian, you kind of have to choose your people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's a little bit different and, and you've got to kind of feel it out a little bit more, but, but you've got to be a little bit vulnerable and say, look, this is kind of how I see things. And sure enough, you know, your people kind of gravitate towards you. I, I do believe that kind of the vibration you put out is kind of the vibration you get and you end up finding your people that, you know, maybe have no military experience at all didn't have to be in the Rangers or in the army or in any military force at all, but they get you Mm -hmm. and you get them. And I think, you know, I, 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 um, I wrote an article recently and, uh, I, a speech that'll air on the 6th of March at the vet expo. Mm -hmm. And, and, and we talked about it, right. Kind of the four things that, that veterans need to do. And, and one of them is, you got to find your people Yep. You, you got, and you got to do it sooner rather than later because you'll go along thinking, I don't need anybody. I didn't like being, I wasn't a joiner. I was, I was different than everybody else. And all of a sudden, you know, a couple of years down the road, you're like, Oh shit. Yeah. I know I that. I know, I know that Dan wants to get into those four things more, but real quick before we get into that, how do you think yeah. on the, on the, on the flip side, how do you think civilians can connect more with veterans? Like, what does that kind of look like besides just donating money, um, you know, yearly or monthly? Like what is, that's the hard part is trying to figure out how can civilians really feel a connection when they've never been there before, but maybe they can somehow help veterans and bridge that gap. Uh, You know, so I look at you, Bo, and I think you're kind of the example of that, right? Mm -hmm. I think of you, I think of, there's a couple of civilians, uh, Tommy Rodriguez, Mm -hmm. uh, Eric Wilson, if they're listening, they'll be excited that I, that I, (laughs) that I pointed them out as examples. 
but I look at, but I look at you, brother, and I, I you were authentic. You mm. were authentic, and you were you, and you didn't have a preconceived idea of who we are, mm-hmm. right? It wasn't, oh well, I have to be subservient and thank this guy over and over for a service, mm. or I have to, or oh, he's broken, or right? There was, there was no preconceived notion. You accepted me as a human mm-hmm. and I accepted you as a human because you were authentic. Yeah. And I think we have to get, and remember, uh, so let's go back to the very beginning where we talked about being teammates as opposed to a hierarchical mm-hmm. kind of a, a lot of, a lot of civilians and not every civilian, but, but, but it kind of works out. And sometimes it's on the veterans issue. Um, civilians either elevate themselves like, well, you did this and I, I did all this, you know, I went to this school and made this much money and you went to the military. So, you know, I'm kind of at this level and you're at this level or they do this kind of other thing where they're like, oh, you served the nation and you did this and you were out there and Mm -hmm. I didn't, you know, I was just back doing whatever. As opposed to, yep, you went down this road. I went down this road. We're both humans. Let's figure out how we connect. That, that's kind of like let's, how I am. Um, be authentic. That's kind of how I go into it is because I would say, you know, traveling on road for nearly two months, you know, for the amount of time for this book and, and having Dan be the first person that I've really known who's had that active military, you know, presence is that. I feel like I've kind of gotten to understand a little bit um, of the struggles in a sense that, you know, some of these veterans go through with connecting to civilians. And the way that I've always, I guess, dealt with it is kind of like what you said. I just look at them as human beings. As I look at it as like, I don't care how many people you killed. I don't care, you know, what operations you did or how long you served or whatever. I care more about, can I connect with you? Like, what kind of beer do you like? You like the barbecue. I mean, you like motocross or you like this or you like that. There's certain things that I can connect with you on. And I think that maybe that's maybe that's kind of the route that you take. And, and, and to give you an example, I feel like this is very similar to some of my friends are in the you know Navajo community that live in northern Arizona that basically are oppressed. But most people that go onto that reservation or they go into those towns to where, you know, some of the Navajo Nation people live as they go in there thinking, how can I help these people? And those people are like, get the fuck out of here. We don't want your help. And they, and, and it's like people feel like pity for them mm-hmm. when really, yes, it's sad what they've been through, but it's there's so many other ways that you can connect with them because they're human beings. So it's kind of a, it, it's a very similar approach to where I feel like if civilians just, in, including myself, went into the matter of not how can I help you and, you know, thanking you for your service or whatever, because it's, it may sound bad, but I never thank anybody for their service. It's I just I I just don't say it because I feel like it's so overused, and it's not a bad thing. It's great to acknowledge those people that have fought overseas and have risked their life and put it on the line. But I think there's so many other ways to be like, you know, how are you, and like connect, and and you can do that in the workplace. And I think there's just a big miscommunication on. I think civilians are just very intimidated by what conversation to start with veterans. Because they feel like it's going to go one of two ways. It's going to go down a rabbit hole and they they think the veteran's going to freak out on them or they think that they have nothing in common. And it, it's not that at all. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's so funny. I wrote an article 
a few years ago. And, you know, Jen always tells me, don't read the comments mm-hmm. that people leave after you write an article. That's the best part. But I, <laughs> I, I wrote an article in Havoc Journal about, you know, don't thank me for my service. Just be I a love person worth yeah. having served for. And I got fried. Mm-hmm. I got fried. Um, look, I, I'm not looking for that, right? Because you're not thanking me for anything. I did it because I absolutely wanted to. I don't think you're a bad person because you thank me. I just, it's not necessary. You didn't do like, it for it's, them. It's, it's, it's like thanking somebody for, hey, thank you for being a stockbroker or <laughs> yeah. thank you for being a teacher or thank <laughs> like, like they you're chose doing that. it because you want to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it's about, you know, just, just like you said, there's an authentic, uh, there's an authenticity in, in who you are. There's an authenticity in who I am. And let's figure out, you know, and again, it's one of the great things that the military does do is we figure out what connects us, not what separates yep. us, right? So, which is why when I was in the military, I didn't really see racism. I didn't see misogyny. Mm-hmm. Because we were focused on what brought us together, not what was different about us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and something that's uncomfortable now is we're constantly focused on what makes us different. Mm-hmm. What's our diversity? Wait a second. What brings us together? What's the same? Because those are the things that I want to connect with you on. Yeah. Not, not, it's easy to see, you know, if somebody's, a, a different color or if somebody's a different sex or if some like those things are they're they're plain they hit you in the face the harder pieces are hey what do we have in common you know do we like the same beer or do we like to you know go out and barbecue or whatever it is mm-hmm. and we focus so much on on what makes us different as opposed to what makes us the same yeah and i may be going on the wrong uh, rabbit hole with this, or maybe I have the wrong, you know, vision on it. But I think an example to me is even if I feel like I've seen veterans get really uncomfortable in the sense that like when people, you know, certain people do thank them for their service. Let's say if it's a veteran who's never been overseas, like they've never experienced warfare, all, all of a sudden you're seeing them kind of cringe and get uncomfortable because I think they're comparing themselves Mm. to the men and women who have actually fought overseas and have been in combat. And now it's making them feel less than. Yeah. So by actually like saying that to them, it's then causing this like psychological, like, oh, oh, thank you. I appreciate it. But then when they walk away, they're like, but I didn't fight like these other people did. I don't know. I could be wrong, but that's no, no, what goes I, think, my head. I think you're spot on. And, and look, it causes know, more combat, harm. Combat is luck and timing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, People, you're a veteran. The minute you, you you finish your your basic training and you know you go to your first duty assignment, you're a veteran, mm-hmm. right? And and it doesn't matter, you know, the luck and timing and and what happens. I mean, uh, you know, if you go in for four years and you don't get to deploy, or you go in for, you know, six years and you don't get to deploy, does it make you less than? No. Or you were at the end of your service, right when the war was starting, doesn't make you less than. Um, I think that's really important. Now that said, kind of got an issue if you've been in twenty years and you haven't you haven't gone overseas. <laughs> eh, 
I'm trying to figure out how the frick that happened, but maybe it's possible. Yeah. Let me tell you about some people I served with in the guard. (laughs) 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 Um, No, no, no. Bo, I'm I'm glad you you brought that up, you know, because I I feel like there's also this, um, this very clear persona of what the veteran is supposed to be, right? And there's a lot of stereotypes out there and it, it also pushes off a lot of veterans. And this is kind of what happened to me is, is almost having that imposter syndrome. Like you, you see what's in the movies, you see what these major influencers and people are on social media that everybody's looking to like, Oh, you're a veteran. Why aren't you like this guy? And I'm like, that's not me. You know, like, why would I, uh, personifies somebody who's who's not me. Do you know how many why, careers there are in the military? Yeah, why? <laughs> why it's different. Me and this guy served in the exact same unit. He went down a different, completely different path, and he decided to do that. And all props to him for being successful and personifying, or you know, making a personality out of himself, and everybody wanting to be like him. We did the same thing. You know, we deployed the same times. We did all the same training. He just decided to go and do that. That doesn't mean that's me. Mm-hmm. I'm my right. own person. And that also doesn't mean that I should feel. And again, I did feel this way. I don't feel this way anymore. But I should not feel like an imposter. I should not feel like I don't have a voice now because this guy's getting way more attention. And clearly he did something different. And he's better than I. And that should not be the perspective of veterans. Yeah, you know it, and it's interesting because I think I went the other way with a couple of guys who either did one deployment or no deployments with the Rangers, did something else, and all of a sudden, you know, or they did one deployment with their service, and they were elevated to this place. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "What? The, they didn't do shit." <laughs> and then, I, and now I just am like, "Okay, well, they did their thing." Mm-hmm. And that, and they're taking advantage of the thing that they did. There's nothing wrong with that. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I, um, I think we talked about it. I always wanted to be very cognizant of how I was portraying the regiment. Um, so like, you know, even the, 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 um, the title of the second book, Meditations of an Army Ranger, like I asked Mike Hall, like, hey, am I doing something? If I'm putting the crest on here and rangers on here, am, am I taking advantage of the regiment, mm-hmm. you know, and elevating myself, stepping on the regiment? You know, I, I asked a bunch of rangers before I did any of it because I was, I didn't want to, but that was me. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the other guys who, had either served in the regiment, not during a time of war, but still did something. Um, other guys who served maybe in a sister unit who did one deployment and, and, and are hanging their hat on that deployment. That's okay. Yeah. That, so I think, I think you're right. And I think it's both, right? I think it's yeah. about not feeling like an imposter and not feeling like they're selling out because they're doing something different. Yeah, and I th- I think that's perfectly fine, and and we've talked about this with some other people too. Is like I, I don't think that very many people who are doing that, and I, I think it's a very very tiny fraction. I think they're they're trying to do it for good, right? Whether it's education, whether it's for 
you know, using their persona to to make income and donate towards mm-hmm. good veteran causes, uh, whether it's just to to bring awareness to the veteran experience and bring humor to it or whatever the case may be. Like, I don't think anybody's out there doing it maliciously. I, I think it's I a, a, a tiny, tiny, you know, maybe one or two. There's, there, maybe. there's one or two that Very are, few, that are yeah. self-serving, but <laughs> they, you know, they're going to exist anyway. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm not taking anything, like you said, I'm not taking anything away from them, but there definitely needs to be a conversation had about a civilians who see that realizing that that's not every veteran and then B for every veteran that sees that realizing that that should not be what you aspire to be. You should be your own person. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Be authentically you. Mm Mm-hmm. Hundred percent. So, um, we you started talking about it, and I I, I want to hear it again because you told us when we were in person um, with the transition, and this kind of kind of parallels directly into it. You know, you talked about four pillars of what it it should be or what veterans should focus on when they're transitioning. If you could tell us what those are, yeah. So I think um, it, it's pretty simple. I think you need a civilian mentor. Uh, somebody who maybe had absolutely no experience in the military or minimal experience in the military and has been successful in the civilian sector. You you need to have that person because they can help you navigate a world that's very, very different from the one that you're coming from. Yeah. And they have a perspective, whereas, you know, for years, Jen could not understand like, wait, you think you can do anything? I'm like, yeah. Well, yeah, that's not how the majority of the world thinks. And that's kind of important to know because you can come across as I did as a real jackass Mm -hmm. because you're like, I can do that. And nobody likes to hear that you can, you think you can do their job that they've spent years trying to do. Um, So I think having that civilian mentor is really important. I think having a mentor that's younger than you, and that's something that we don't think about a whole lot, but when we're in the military, the day we get in the military, the next day, somebody younger is coming in mm-hmm. and they're pushing us both physically and mentally. They're, they're challenging our ideas on things. Right. And I remember as a battalion commander, um, you know, young uh, NCOs and even privates who saw the world differently because of Twitter and Instagram and, and like, Oh my gosh, I got to stay on top of this stuff. When you get out all of a sudden, there's no one pushing you and keeping you kind of up to date. Mm-hmm. And you've got to find that younger mentor and it can be a two way street, right? Where you're helping them and they're helping you, but they're keeping you informed of like, you know, what's what's the most recent TikTok challenge, you know, because that matters to them. And if you're going to lead uh, across echelons of people, you got to kind of know the language they're talking about. Mm-hmm. You've you got to know what's important to them. Um, the find your tribe, which we've talked about. And then the last thing is you got to stay physically fit. Mm. And it's something that, quite honestly, I don't understand why the country's not talking about now in the current situation we're in, mm-hmm. where we know that um, our physical fitness state actually matters 
to our health mm-hmm. in the pandemic. Uh, we haven't talked about it, but I think it's easy when you get out of the military to be like, I'm not getting up at six o'clock every morning and, you know, doing PT. You don't have to, but you can walk or you can run or you can lift weights or, but if you're not staying physically fit, you know, um, let's go back to Socrates. Socrates has a great uh, discussion where he talks to somebody who's, I'm not going to say obese, but kind of dumpy. And he says, look, when you're sick um, and you don't feel well, you can't think well. Isn't that correct? And the guy's like, well, yeah, you can't think well when you're not feeling well. Okay. So if your body isn't at its best, then your mind's not at its best. Correct? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. Okay. Well, that is your every day, right? So if if you're struggling to, you know, walk a mile, if you're, if you're not physically fit, if you're overweight, and I mean, look at it, 30% of the state that I'm in, in New York, is, is over BMI, and, and BMI is certainly a horrible way to uh, determine uh, obesity, but, but when 30% are considered obese, mm-hmm in your state, that's a, that's a problem. That's a huge number. And, and we're, and we're not talking about it. In fact, what we're doing is we're saying, Oh no, if you're fat, it's healthy. No, it's not. No, it's not healthy. It's not healthy for your body and it's not healthy for your mind. Mm-hmm. And you know, there is nothing wrong with, with, you know, doing a little exercise. And I think that if we know that the mind is reflected in our physiology, then we should really be focused on being as physically fit as we can be. Well, it's kind of like, I mean, for anybody that's even gone to the gym even once or ran or done some cardio and had that sweat, had that real like, I'm going to throw up feeling in their stomach, but then waited a little while afterwards, like how confident do you feel? Like you feel really good about yourself. You're like, fuck, I did that. I didn't want to do it. It was cold outside. I was lazy. I was tired, whatever. But the second you can motivate yourself to get out there, it's kind of like it is a mental state and working out makes you feel more confident in yourself, which leads to more confidence inside your work, to your friendships, to your family, to your relationship at home. It, it's kind of like the center of that, that spider effect, you know, that spider web to where it's going to help mm-hmm. a, a lot of other areas in your life. And I think it's, it's kind of like, you know, I know we want to have Steve Forty on the podcast we talked to him and he's like really excited because I know he wants to be on, but to kind of, touch into what he even mentioned to us in person, which goes with what you said is that, you know, he even talks about, you know, like having like sleep hygiene, you know, getting enough hours of sleep and like what's leading to, you know, veteran suicides that we're not asking the questions on. Are they drinking alcohol? Is there like, you know, is their marriage gone to shit? You know, are their kids like not around? There's so many other factors that go into that, but he talks a lot about, you know, the, the physical, you know, and mental state of how those two relate to each other. And, and I, and I think, I think even to go back to your, your first, you know, pillar, it's just, I don't know. It's so interesting that that, that first pillar and that last pillar really hit home for me. They're all important, but those first ones, the first and last are so powerful. Well, look, Steve is one of my best friends in the world. Mm -hmm. And I, I I think he's, you know, he has been such a, not only a mentor to me and not only a friend, but truly, a, a, a just a staple, mm-hmm. uh, in my life. And, mm-hmm. 
and look, you know, there's so much brain science that talks about, look, when you work out, it, it, it activates the part of your brain that is focused on compassion mm-hmm. and empathy. And after you work out the, your prefrontal cortex, which really regulates, actually it's society of prefrontal cortex, which regulates behavior and temper is the neuroplasticity that exists is expanded. Mm. So if you work out and then all of a sudden you start having these discussions, like we're talking now, all of a sudden your, your prefrontal cortex starts changing Mm -hmm. and you can regulate emotion. better. Mm. I mean, this is, this isn't like ooga booga psychology. This is, this is neuroscience. This is, there's a clear link. And until that we accept that the broken, the quote unquote broken veteran, the veterans who, who's, who's not thinking maybe in the most optimal way, if we think it's psychology, we're missing it because Mm -hmm. psychology is this kind of dark cloud that only a few people understand. If we look at it as physiology, if you, if you tear your ACL you get ACL repair and you do therapy and it gets better. Mm-hmm. Well, when we're talking about our brain, it's the same damn thing. Mm-hmm. And what we're having is a physiological problem, not a psychological problem. Yeah. Again, probably going to get a lot of shit. For no, that what, what's interesting too, but, is that, you know, and I just thought of this, but that first pillar where you say, you know, for veterans to get a civilian mentor, um, you know, to relate to me, I'm a civilian and creating this book, I couldn't do it without having veterans around me. So it's kind of the opposite for me too, to where it's like, I can't do certain things, you know, in the veteran space as a civilian, because I need the expertise of veterans in the military that I don't have any experience on. Yeah. It, it it's an incredibly powerful, uh, compliment to each other like mm-hmm. I, I know the very natural thing is is like what merging vets and players does you know with taking veterans and professional athletes pairing them together uh for mentorship for connection for all those different things but i think you're right it, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be somebody you know they they clearly have the same mindset so it's easy to pair them together but i think maybe that is a portion of the answer that's not all the answer but maybe that is a portion of the answer is for veterans to seek mentorship from civilians, but also for civilians to seek mentorship from veterans Mm -hmm. or to seek mentorship from professional athletes, just to seek mentorship overall from somebody who was at the peak, at the prime, at the top of the top and has a different mindset because like you said, the physical, the emotional, the, the mental, the spiritual that has been evolved just in that process of becoming you know, one of the best, whether it's in the military or in sports, like that's all there. And so marriaging that with somebody who hasn't figured that out maybe yet, but is trying to find it. I feel like that's, that's a a, a portion of what the perfect solution could be. Well, well, look at you too. I mean, quite honestly, the two of you are a perfect example of that, right? You're this steely eyed killer and Bo is this incredibly talented artist. Mm. Right. And yet you two are so connected and so in tune and so together 
that you make, you know, individually, you're both studs, right? I mean, Bo is a phenomenal artist who, like, if, if, if you look at his photos, you're just like, holy crap, how does that possibly happen? And Dan, you're this, you're this, you know, you're what every, you know, ranger wants to be. You're this steely-eyed, you know, killer. And together you make this better individual than any, either one of you could be alone. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think that's, I think you two are a perfect example of that. So you talk merging vets and players, you can talk team red, white, and blue. You can talk, there's a whole bunch of organizations that do great things, but it doesn't have to be that it can Mm -hmm. even be what you two are doing and have you've you're connected and so now you're doing this project. Yeah. And my guess is when this project is over, you're going to get another project. Mm-hmm. We've got a few in mind. The, the, the <laughs> two of you are going to continue to go. I I, uh, I kill people with cameras. I just throw a big old camera at their head. <laughs> it's funny. It, it's actually really funny because there's a funny story behind that. He was uh, very early in the process of going to um, take photos of people. He was about to put an email together or a text together or something that was like, Hey, when I come out to shoot you, mm. because that's a very common photography thing of like, come shoot, take a photo of you. And I was like, Bo, maybe you don't want to say that exact <laughs> word better. <Yeah. laughs> it's like in that context. It's not spark so it was, controversy. It was, pretty, it was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah and that's awesome. Lastly, that's I want to awesome. touch on uh, JC on the topic of, you know, I think you have some ideas that you're working on and, and I want to see, from your perspective, where do you see an opportunity for change in the veteran community? Um, we've got to get over ourselves a little bit, right? We, we can't define ourselves by what we've done. What we've done has made us who we are. What we do with that is what's important. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what do we do with, with what we've, what we've become? And, you know, so the change in the veteran community has to come from us. Right. And I, I don't think, you know, it, it's funny because I think um, there's this disgruntled veteran piece or, you know, millennials, da, 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 da. Look, we're just as entitled. If, if we go down this road where we say, well, I served and this is look, be proud of your service. And that's awesome. You should be, you, you, you did something that not many people have done, but that was yesterday. What have you done today to make the world better? Mm-hmm. Be- because that's what matters. And how are you making your fellow, you know, it's easy to look down on people. Um, and it's easy to separate ourselves from people, but how do we connect with people and how do we put ourselves on equal footing with people? And yeah. look, there's a, there's, there's a little, probably not so secret um, perspective of veterans that because we're the 1% that served or did what others wouldn't do, we think we're better than mm-hmm. we, we gotta, we gotta get past that. Mm-hmm. Like, okay. So we made some choices that had us down this path doesn't make us better or worse just means we we made these choices let's let let's be proud of our service let's be proud of what we've done let's be proud of who we've become and now go into the so what now what Mm -hmm. okay 
you've done all that. What are you going to do with it? What is it going forward? I think um, we talked when you guys were here, right? I got no problem. Like, you know, I wear, in fact, I think I even have it on, right? I got a, I got a Ranger t-shirt on, mm-hmm. you know, I, you, I want, I want people to be proud of their service. But if you're just wearing your high school varsity jacket and going to high school parties and mm-hmm. talking about the good old days, then I'm not really sure how you're helping anybody. Right. So, yeah. so, so that's fine. Wear your high school varsity jacket, but what are you doing today? Mm-hmm. Yep. What are you, what are you doing with, with who you've become with these incredible experiences that have made you right. And the things, even the things that are negative were incredible experiences and they've created this human that you are, what are you going to do with that? And that's, what's going to change us, get us away from this disgruntled veteran, this broken veteran, this, you know, look, we, we have to, we have to stop separating ourselves from the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. We have to start integrating and showing our value yeah. because quite honestly, we, we do have value. We have incredible value. We have incredible perspective. We can do a whole bunch of stuff. We, we can't leave that in the past. Yeah. 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 I mean, you're exactly right. We, uh, Man, I can't, I can't tell you how much this, uh, this whole podcast has f- filled my soul, this whole conversation, mm-hmm. but you know, this, this conversation specifically, I think has brought my entire veteran experience into one conversation and there's so much more to it, but it's highlighted, I think the highs and it's also highlighted the lows where I've gone wrong, where I've gone right. And out of anything that, you know, I hope people who listen to this, especially veterans, is take these words seriously. Find your tribe. Mm -hmm. Hold on to that physical fitness. Find your mentors. You know, do all the things that will set yourself up for success and make sure that you don't fall into that pit of feeling helpless and hopeless. And, you know, just for civilians, and uh, maybe Bo can can speak to this too. For civilians, don't look for the opportunity to say thank you for your service, but look for the opportunity to connect with a veteran on a different level, on a human to human level, mm. and understand where they're coming from, and let them give you their perspective, and allow yourself to give them your perspective as well. That's huge. I think that's. I see JC shaking his head because I know he agrees, but it's beautiful. It's big because I think it's that's the kind of nail in the coffin to where I think that, you know, civilians can obviously from their perspective take from that and be like, if that's all it is, it's just connection. It's just communicating. It's being human beings. It's understanding that maybe they did, you know, fight overseas. Maybe they have been through some shit. Maybe they've been through, you know, deeper stuff than we've been through, but there's other levels that we can connect on. And then it just naturally like flows. And I think that's how I treat every veteran, even on the road that I've met with. It's just been, oh, cool. Like I see you like that. And it's just been being a human being, being observant and yeah. finding those those topics to talk to and relate to. I think we lack a lot of communication skills. And mm-hmm. if you can just take that step to communicate, find that connection. You know, I, I hear of veterans that connect by just 
making a phone call once a day to different veterans and talking for like 10, 20 minutes, just saying, hey, brother, checking in on you. Hope you're doing well. What's been going on? Just that little minimal form of contact can kind of change a person's day and that can change their week, their month or year. And and hopefully by doing that, we can prevent a lot of these suicides and, and actually start bringing people closer to that connection and that purpose again. Yeah. Look, it's about lifting each other up as we climb, mm-hmm. right? Nobody's nobody's at the pinnacle yet. We're all climbing. Yeah, I don't know that anybody gets to the pinnacle. <laughs> we just got to keep climbing and we got to lift each other up as we're climbing. Yeah. As far as I know, nobody's reached Mount Everest by themselves. No. So, no. you know, the same same idea and same mentality uh, holds true is you got to got to have those people there with you to support you to get to the top mm-hmm. and to get yeah. each other to the top. Well, Absolutely. JC, I, I want to thank you for obviously letting us into your home. Um, for people listening, JC, you've been huge with connecting us with quite a few veterans that are going to be featured in this book. And obviously, we couldn't be able to tell their stories without you. We couldn't be able to tell your story. And so it's been great to meet with you in person in New York City and, and share that night with you and, and with you and your wife and your family. And then obviously to have you on this podcast now and to go in more depth to share that with others. So we really appreciate you. And, and thanks for being a part of this. I have no doubt it'll happen again. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. And and look, you're, you know, you're part of my tribe now, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the two of you are are, are part of the family and and uh, doesn't have to be a big circle, but I really like the circle that that I get to get to be a part of. And thank you guys for this opportunity to talk to you guys and and hopefully, you know, provide some perspective. And I look forward to the next thing we all do together. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all right, brother. <laughs> Till the next polar plunge. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, brother. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. Mm-hmm.